Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This is Diana from Arlington, Virginia. I support this show and get exclusive podcasts at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and this week they considered it a crime against the game, a baseball team that cheated its way to a championship. We'll discuss the new podcast, The Edge. Plus, the government said it was about a riot. The defendants say it was about the Vietnam War. We'll review the new Netflix docudrama, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and the Steve Kornacki of my kitchen, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, I want to tell you what's happening in DeKalb County right now. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and the Steve Kornacki of cats, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Yeah, you want a cat update? Uh, where they're going to go next? What's going to happen? It's, it, it could be interesting. <laughs> and finally... Finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and the Steve Kornacki of UFOs, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. I don't. I don't have any Steve Kornacki impersonations. <laughs> well, have you? I guess, but hi. I guess everybody knows you watch MSNBC. The bottom line is, if you have changed your shirt. In the last 24 hours, you are not Steve Kornacki. That's just I, how Well, it works. Uh, that, in that way, I am fine. <laughs> I will say, Steve Kornacki, just as an aside, uh, politics aside, Steve Kornacki, before he was on MSNBC, used to be a regular guest on the public radio talk show I used to produce. And he is, in my experience, the nicest genius in the world like he he would literally like he was in our rolodex for people to talk about something political something whatever i would text him he would always text me back like immediately and he'd be on the show like in five minutes he's he's so nice anyway i read his book he's he's very he is very smart yeah so aside from everything that's going on all you will just say for the record steve kornacki you are super nice. So how's everybody doing? I mean, when this podcast drops, we're going to be in a very different place than we are now. So it's going to be a thousand years. Politics aside, how is everybody holding up? Laura Bricker, how would you describe your state of being in three words? Go. Wine, Kit Kats, and cats. (laughs) What about you, Toby Ball? Three words. Warm day today. Oh, what about you, Kevin? (laughs) Extra long nap. Yes. How about extra long hair? That well, yeah, it's been that way for a while. But I, I but I cleaned up my beard. <laughs> it makes your hair look even longer. I know. <laughs> like the proportions of hair are just totally off. I mean like when you shave the <laughs> Oh <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and just like that, all the parents listening to this podcast in the car with their kids will never download our show again. <laughs> Your mistake. 
It's okay. It's like when I swore um, or I sent the, the picture of the shirt that said piss to that little kid with the cat podcast. <laughs> and his, he's like, Daddy, what's piss? And I'm like, oops. Oh, that didn't happen again. Oh, man. Yeah. It's a sheltered life not knowing what piss is. All well, right. he was only like seven, Rebecca. <laughs> you got to learn somehow. Please. When I was seven, <laughs> God. <laughs> I was smoking cigarettes. Oh, should we just sell hot stereos of back alley? Should we just go ahead and record this podcast? How about we do that? All right, let's do it. It was all those things that the teams had done to them in 2013. It finally felt like they had flipped it around and done it to everyone else in 17. It was almost like, you know, you knew they would win. You just wanted to know by how much. When the Houston Astros went from worst to first, the baseball world chalked it up to a smart mix of scouting and analytical study. Then it came out they'd been stealing the other team's pitching signs, using a high-tech camera, and banging on a very low-tech trash can. The Houston Astros cheated their way to a World Series championship. They have a guy on the record, a guy that was on the team, Mike Fires, a pitcher who laid out exactly what they do. The Astros hitters seemed like they knew what pitches Bolsinger was going to throw because they actually did know what pitches Bolsinger was going to throw. Sports writer Ben Ryder was among those who created the Astros myth. In the podcast The Edge from Cadence 13 and Leon Nafox Prologue Productions, Ryder explores the sign-stealing scandal and why he failed to see the team was cheating. What had the Astros done? Who in the organization had known about it? And when did they know it? What did it say about them as a team and about baseball as a whole? And why had everyone, including me, missed it entirely? Now we are going to be talking about plot points from The Edge. So if you want to skip ahead to our spoiler-free reviews, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Now, I'm going to do something that I have never done on this podcast before, I don't think. Maybe I did it once sometime in the past. You did when your your throat was bad. That's right. I, Kevin Flynn, am going to hand the first half of this podcast hosting duties over to you. Because it's about baseball? Because you know how I feel about baseball. <laughs> and we all know how you feel about baseball. I just feel like you deserve it. You okay. should be in the chair for this one. All right, well, then let me start with you. Yes. So, Rebecca, I think one might assume yep. that... Because it's about a baseball scandal, the stakes are very low. But in the first episode of The Edge, it starts off with an introduction to Mike Bolsinger, mm-hmm. who was a uh, pitcher for, I think it was the Blue Jays. Yes. And you hear how he got roughed up in a baseball game. He pitched very poorly and was demoted yep. and never got back. It was not able to find his way back to the major leagues again. By the way, Kevin, he was a relief pitcher. Not a starting pitcher, Mike Bolson. Did I say that? I'm telling you because oh, I learned, you know? I've right. learned a lot about baseball listening to this podcast. The Blue Jays manager told Bolsinger what he already figured. He was being demoted to the minors. Triple A Buffalo. Bolsinger picked up his things the next afternoon. I literally walked out of the front door of their stadium <laughs> right before the game. I, there was a couple fans coming. But yeah, I just kind of walked out there and I waited for my, my wife to pick me up with my baseball bag and my shoulder and, and got in the car and went back home. Yeah, that's high stakes. I mean, this guy lost his livelihood because of this cheating scandal. I thought, in my opinion, that was a great way to frame the story. Because as you know, and as I said to you after listening to a later episode of this podcast, I find people who care a lot about sports to be sort of sad. 
But this was this guy's livelihood. I find you to be sort of sad. <laughs> Toby will have time to rebut later. But I, I, I did think that, you know, when you like look at it this way and you have this person who's been working toward this goal for his entire life, that actually is high stakes. It's a very human story. It speaks to why people love sports. This guy's life essentially was put on a different track and ruined because of these cheaters. It'd be like having a podcast and finding out that the number one podcast bought all their listeners and all their... Exactly. And all their, their reviews. Their reviews. Exactly. And you got Cheating. you got knocked out of it. Cheating. Okay, exactly. But it changes the emotional dynamic, does it not? Right 100%. from the start, and kind of gets okay. And also, Bolsinger, very likable, very earnest, great character to start the story with. Th- that's one story, but they also talk later about like what the World Series shares of money are for yep. people yeah. who are on staff. So you know the, the teams that lost to them, you know, the, you're you're denying those people like significant amounts of money through through cheating. I mean, it's. There's a lot of real consequences for people. It's not a ton of people, but the, the consequences are there. Right. Now, Laura, Ben Ryder, before he did this podcast, he was a you know, beat uh, reporter for, I can't remember if it was Sports, Sports, Sports Illustrated, right? Yeah. And so he- He wrote that in, article, Meet Your 2017 World Series Champions. Right. He ended up going <laughs> on, you know, being embedded and writing this book, Astro Ball, and then, you know, sort of looking back on it, there's some egg on his face personally and professionally. So what do you think this means as far as being an embedded reporter? Is this a cautionary tale? Well, I think it is a little bit. And I, I think he was definitely the right person to tell this story because he had obviously been embedded. He had, you know, written about them. He'd written a book about them. And I think that there is, a, you know, a certain level of familiarity that comes when you are on this one beat for a long time. And, you know, you're a, you're a reporter and you're trying to be objective, but I think that you do sort of get to know people and you might let your guard down a little bit. And in a way, I think you might be kind of rooting for them because now you're in there with them. So when they win, I mean, that's exciting. And you're there for this great story and you know all these people. And, and, and I, you know, and I, I think he definitely took ownership of that, but it's like, I can't imagine, you know, it's like being in his position and then looking back and being like, how did I miss all of this? Like, it was a pretty elaborate scheme. And the fact that he didn't see this happen, you know, it didn't have a sense, I think was kind of like, uh, yeah, it's a little embarrassing. But wasn't he also looking at things that did Rebecca, contribute? Rebecca, I'm running this podcast. Yeah, but, like, but listen, I'm just doing a Toby thing okay. where I say, <laughs> I was just going to say, wasn't he also looking at things that did contribute to their being successful? I mean, he was looking at the way they were using analytics. He was using at the way that they were sort of rebuilding. Yeah, how the whole money up. ball thing, the yeah. new iteration of it. Yeah. How he brought this like jeans guy in who like created the <laughs> algorithm for buying jeans that made you feel like you were buying a size down but were actually fit your fat ass. Which, you by the way, everybody lies about how fat they are. Genius. So just, yeah. <laughs> Fucking genius. Um, maybe that guy should like do the polling operation in America instead of these clowns that are doing it now. Anyway, but he was actually looking at factors that, that counted. And I thought it was funny, the episode where he was asked, like, do you feel cheated? He spent, I think, a little too long explaining how he felt about it. The bottom line was they were lying to everybody. Why should he be any different than yeah. the millions of people watching these games? Literally, Kevin, when you watch the games, I look at the YouTube videos, you can hear this. You can hear it. You can hear it now. Until I, <laughs> right. I think it was um, the Crypto Queen podcast where the journalist talked about he, he deals with complicated stuff. And he said that he would explain it to his mother. And if his mother understood it, he, know, he knew he had, he'd, done, he'd done a good job of communicating yeah. it. When an Astros hitter was about to receive an off-speed pitch, like Bolsinger's slow curve, 
The hitter would hear a bang. When the hitter was about to receive a fastball, no bangs. It was a heck of an edge to take. When you know it's coming, you're, you're taking everything away, especially a guy that is not as elite as a lot of people. So, Laura, as somebody who's probably not a deep baseball fan, did you understand, based on the way they told it, what sign stealing was and how the scheme was pulled off? Um, yes, it, it, it was confusing, but it, I mean, I understood, I understood the general premise of it. And Rebecca, you too? Oh, 100%. You can follow that? Yeah, okay. basically there are some standard signs, like four standard signs. But then when there are people on base, they change the signs because people on base can see the signs. Right. Like they make it like, I'm going to flash my number four, but only I'm going to do that after I say two. The sign right. becomes when you do the sign after which number. I got that. My question was this. This is a real question for you because you're a baseball fan. Yeah. You're also a football fan. Yeah. So it seems like in football, when they call plays, it's much more complicated. They have like codes. They switch yeah. it. Like I've I've watched enough like football documentary to know that like when Tom Brady says like Omaha, Omaha, he he could say something totally different in another huddle and it would mean the same thing. So it's three sixteen. Why Omaha is uh, Omaha's Peyton Manning? Peyton Manning. Yeah, thanks, but Toby. But why do like why in baseball? Why don't they make it more complicated than apparently it is? It's apparently very standard for every team. Well, before I let Toby answer that question, I mean we've all seen. Um, like the the videos of like a third base coach doing all the crazy stuff where he rubs his hat and he touches his nose and he puts a hand down his thing and across his chest, like all these crazy signs. It's a part of most games where you have to signal to get plays in. Football plays are super complicated, right? But uh, they're also wearing a headset in their helmet. Now they're able to do that, right? <laughs> so the idea, if another team can pick up on the plays, that's gamesmanship. And they explain this, right? It's sort of... It's not the dark arts, but it's acceptable. And it's sort of like on your team to make sure that you don't give up your signs. That's part of the professional game, which is why why the catcher sits the way, squats the way he does, and why the glove, the, the catcher's mitt is shaped like that because he hides down in his crotch where he's, he's the fingers he's showing, all this stuff. Like a big Mickey Mouse hand. But then there's like they push the line to where they've decided, no, that's okay, but that step is too far. Technology, Toby. What do you think about that? There is a fine line between gamesmanship and cheating, and what is sports ethics and what are sports rules breaking? Am I right? Yeah, I, I and I, you know, I, I think it's. Is it a fine line though? Well, it it's not a straight line, I guess I would say, and uh, that there's some things that seem completely illegitimate that are completely allowed. <laughs> Right. And then there are other things that you're like, why is that such a big deal? Like, I think an example of that from football is the whole deflate gate thing when Tom Brady, you know, either Cheated. did or didn't have his footballs <laughs> slightly deflated. So you might say, you know, whether you inflate the footballs a little bit less or a little bit more, is that really like a game changing thing? Like, is that a big deal as opposed to like taking a whole bunch of steroids or, right. or whatever? Using stick so, on your hands. Right, exactly. So, so there's some there. There are things that seem like they give you a big advantage that are sort of acceptable and legal. There are other things that also give you an advantage, maybe not as big, that are either like sort of specifically uh, against the rules or are against the you know quote unquote unwritten rules of which baseball has got about ten zillion. Like, <laughs> even somebody who's like grown up watching like I'm not a huge baseball fan, but you know, I, I feel I've been to a lot of baseball games. I've certainly watched a lot on TV. 
but even like this year, there was this whole thing about a guy swung on a three three ball no strike pitch in the seventh inning when they were up by eight runs and he hit a home run and people were furious. I mean, people were like, oh, he doesn't respect the game. I'm like, what the hell? Like, yeah. I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Like, you're not supposed to swing? I'm supposed to show so, up the pitcher yeah. and you don't bunt in the middle of a uh, no hitter and you don't run up the score and there's no crying in baseball. It's bullshit. So, there's no crying right. in baseball. It's bullshit. So, so these aren't things that, so those are the things that are sort of more, you know, adjudicated by the culture rather than having the commissioner suspend you or something like that. And what this what this is about is what's the line between spying as much as you can with, without being assisted by technology, I guess, is kind of where baseball has, has drawn the line. It's like if you can see it with your own eyes when you're on second base or wherever, that's one thing. If you're pointing a, a, a telephoto lens at it from the outfield and then texting somebody or, or whatever, like that, that's the line that you cross. So I, I've got my theory about why that why why it is that way, but you know that that's where they've decided. It's like we don't want to use technology to gain an advantage. But what, if you can do it, what's your theory? Well, I think especially in baseball, that it's a very nostalgic game. Like you've got guys like George Will, like who really sort of look at this as being a piece of Americana or whatever. And I think the fact that these unwritten rules have continued on, and the fact that technology is really seen. As, as something they're trying to avoid as much as possible. This is very conservative vision of wanting baseball to be the way it was in like the 1940s. Whether well, were resistant to instant replay, things like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and any kind of technology. And, you know, and it's strange because baseball back then, it was really just white Americans playing. And now if you take a look at the major leagues, you know, it's like Dominicans and Cubans and a ton of Latin Americans, Koreans, Japanese, Americans, you know, it's 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 this very culturally mixed group now. But I think that's sort of harkening back to sort of the old baseball. Hmm. Uh, at least that's my theory. Can I just add to that? Because I just kept thinking about in this when I was listening to this podcast about sort of the, the written rules and the unwritten rules. There's only really only one televised sport that I love watching, and that's golf, believe it or not. I really, really love watching golf. Golf rules are the rules are the rules, but there's also a the 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 unwritten thing is actually written. It's called etiquette, right? So there's things about like not talking. There's things about like not you know sort of right. You know, and it actually the whole thing about etiquette is actually what you do can affect the play of the person you're paired with, and that's why it exists. And it also exists in the crowd for similar reasons. It also harkens back to this very sort of like white supremacist, upper crusty culture of golf on which it was built. And I just kept thinking that too, like the the lack of intrusion of technology or the lack of like the resistance technology definitely sort of feels like a purist stance that isn't real. Because the purest stance doesn't exist when it comes to what they're actually doing, which, by the way, is stealing. It's actually cheating. <laughs> so part of the uh, public perception has to do with whether or not you like a team. And uh, Lars, Ben Ryder, you know, wrote all this stuff about the Astros and helped shape sort of the myth that they were this, you know, 
happy-go-lucky loser team that got smart and was able to be successful. But at the same time, we hear that sort of the culture of the team was not great. And then people outside were people in the game, but outside of the team did not like the Astros for certain reasons. And it's probably most typified by the trade for Roberto Osuna, the relief pitcher who is serving a suspension uh, because of a domestic violence charge. But the analytical models that showed Osuna would be a smart trade for the Astros didn't account for everything. Like what it would say about them, that they were willing to do it. Or how it would make people feel. How it would change the way baseball fans, even Astros fans, thought about them. What did you think about that part of the story and and, and sort of the bigger implications of making that trade? Well, I, I mean, it's a little bit ironic that it's okay to cheat because to me, I think this whole thing, I was just very disillusioned by the entire sport. Um, so it's okay to cheat. And then that sort of leads to this like, well, it's also okay. This guy, we're going to give him another chance. And like people can change. And I just felt like they came up with a lot of awfully convenient excuses for why they brought him on the team. And, um, you know, I just felt like it just gave me kind of, again, that overall icky feeling about the entire team and the entire culture because there was just so much going on there that, you know, it just it didn't feel good. It felt like this particular group was just up to whatever they could to win, regardless of who they had to bring on the team to do so and what they had to do behind the scenes cheating to make it happen. So I don't know. It just was one more thing. I I, I, I don't watch baseball. (laughs) But I think there's this this thing in the larger sports culture that leagues and teams and sports are tolerant of crimes off the field. Against women, especially. Against women, but crimes on the field, against the game, quote-unquote, are things that ca- cannot be uh, taken. They're not plus. Nobody, nobody threw a baseball at Addison Russell's head because he had tried to strangle his wife. But people are trying to bean A-Rod because he did steroids. Right. So it's like one of those things. Uh, well, you know, he they're willing to put you have to have video of a guy slugging his wife in an elevator. But even that doesn't matter. Right. Even that doesn't matter. Right. So, yeah, this yeah. is just being a woman. I'm just going to tell you this. This is a thing that you it's have not to connect. It's not connected to the cheating scandal, but it's indicative of a larger problem within that organization. But you have to understand, yeah. by the way, I did notice, by the way, that you pointed to A-Rod as the cheater. It's the only instead be- of well, pointing to. The many cheaters in the Boston Red Sox, including one of them who's in this podcast, their what? little manager guy, Alex Cora, who oh, totally well, brought I, his I, I, I would with happy him. to be talking about that. But anyway, um, but yeah. this is what it is like. And I'm not kidding, Kevin. And I, I don't mean to be like dramatic. This is what it is like being a woman in the world, right? Yeah. The the biggest abuse scandal that got the most attention in like the history of modern sports in my lifetime, where people still hate the athlete the most for the thing he did is off the field is who? Michael Vick for yeah. fighting dogs. Oh, yeah, right. You literally have, by the way, which is horrible and which is awful and in every way, you literally have athletes who have beaten women almost to death or have routinely punched their wives or have raped people and ha- admitted to rape yep. who then become venerable 
untouchable, completely like, you know, deserving of a second chance. I mean, this is the sports culture. The sports culture is just a reflection of American culture, which is just a reflection of patriarchal culture. When I hear this, it's not surprising. I'm not even disgusted by it. For me, it's just what it's like being a woman in 2020. I'm sorry, it just is. It hurts, but it's also just the way that it is. We hear in the podcast from a fan, an Uber fan, who decided to do the data journalism on his own. And so he went back and he did a bunch of stuff where he watched video of the games and he created a spreadsheet where he checked, you know, listened for the banging of the the, the trash can and you know put it all together. But then there was a second data journalist that we heard from who ran the numbers on it and did they get an advantage? And I was very surprised. I think everybody was surprised that the advantage was not like a 50-point jump in a batting average, but like a nine-point jump, which is fairly small. So let's talk risk-reward. Toby, was it worth it? From a, from a practical side, did they get their quote-unquote money's worth by putting the scheme together? Yeah, I mean, the thing about baseball that's different than almost any other sport is they play 162 games. And Not this year, but continue. Yeah, but 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 in the time that we're talking about, so you're playing 162 games, you you know, your your average player is probably up at bat four times, averaging about four times a game. So, you know, that's like 700 at bats. And so, like these small changes in your percentage uh, batting average that ends up being a bunch of hits, and, and you know that'll end up being converted into wins. There's just so many repetitions of the same thing that small percentages matter. So it was. What's interesting is he he comes up with that, and then the, the examples that they use, and part of it I think is probably for dramatic effect. But when you do hear highlights, it's about the Astros beating these teams like 15 to 3 or like scoring 11 runs in an inning before a guy can get it out and stuff. And that doesn't really comport with the statistical analysis he does necessarily. I mean, those are those are brutal. Like those are things that don't happen a whole lot in a season and to have one team be like laying it on people again and again and again uh, in itself seems unusual. So I don't know, I, you know, stats and sports are funny and they talk about, you know, they're statisticians who say that hot streaks, like in basketball, like a hot shooting streak, like that's, that's an illusion. Have you ever seen Steph Curry though? Because <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't seem that way when a guy hits like seven <laughs> out of eight shots. Yeah. Like that seems hot. Like, so I, you know, there are lies, damn lies and statistics. But part of the thing about saber metrics and Moneyball and all this is that you've got smart people looking for how to get... Nine percent higher batting average, bleeding edge, bleeding edge stuff, small stuff that adds up. Because the way it was is, we find one big star, and he'll hit a whole bunch of home runs, and that's how we win. And if you remember the movie Moneyball, it was like, no, we'll get Scott Hatterberg and this other guy. Yeah, he's getting base, and it's, it equals yeah. one. You know, uh, Jeremy Giambi. You asked the you asked a question though. Was it worth well, the money? Well, I was just going to ask you. They won the World Series. Of course, it was worth <laughs> it. I mean, the bottom line is what 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 was interesting about the statistical analysis was he talks about how the crime was like getting, committing a robbery and then running away from the scene with a hole in the bag and the money coming yeah. out because they would gain, lose just as much as they gain. The bottom line is that what he then admits is that they didn't do an analysis of how much they cheated when it counted. Right. The high stakes moments where it counted are the moments that get you into the playoffs. Even where if they clutch. 
Yeah. To use a baseball term. But yeah. even if you stop cheating after you get in the playoffs, which it sounds like is what happened, because that other pitcher, what was his name, caught on while uh, he was Farquhar. on the mound. Yeah, Farquhar. Oh, great name, Farquhar. Yeah, yeah the one who had the embolism. Wasn't that? No, that was in Shrek. Wasn't Lord Farquhar. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It was in Shrek. Farquhar, yes. Yes. He, uh, so it sounds like they stopped after that because they knew he was they knew that they were, that someone had caught on. But the bottom line is they had already gotten to the playoffs and they were a good team. So it's like w- doing it when it matters is what counts. They won the World Series. Of course it was worth it. Of course it, it, it worked for them, in other words. A lot of the focus is on the front office and what they knew. We, we find out up front about you know, how bleeding edge they are. They're looking at stats and all this other stuff. And the question becomes, when you find out that it's that small a number, is that evidence that the front room, front office didn't know this was going on? Nope. Because it's like, what a low return. You think it's, yeah. I believe they were cheating in other ways, too. I actually do believe that conspiracy theory. I I do think, I mean, when you're about the code breaker, when you are talking about. For instance, a like the edge being somebody who's willing to dive into a base rather than slide into a base. Like that's the edge you're looking for, right? That's the edge. Every single thing is like that. I totally believe the buzzer under the shirt thing could have happened. I'm not saying it did. I believe it could have. By the way, Beltran, is that his name? Carlos Beltran, Beltran, yeah. Fascinating character. Fascinating. I really wanted him to be in the podcast way more. He had the old interview with him. I mean, they got the manager guy. I'm sorry, I don't know anyone's name because I hate baseball. Jeff Lundo. Jeans man. Beltron is the one that, like, I would, I want a podcast all about him and his career and, like, how he got there. He was a great player for the Mets. Yeah. (laughs) Not anymore. He was. (laughs) Yeah. So we do hear a lot from Jeff uh, Lunau, and that's the uh, the GM. Laura, what did you think of him? Because in the end, I mean, he seemed to be fairly candid. And then in part one of episode six, he kind of lays it out. He takes responsibility. He reveals some things about how he got everybody's digital data from the MLB by accident. I feel bad, and I'm sorry. I'm, I really am sorry. I wish I had known about it. I would have stopped it. We'd be talking about something different now. I've had to accept consequences. I've had the most severe consequences of anybody relative to what I did and what I knew. That's because I was the general manager. What's your takeaway on him? What's your final verdict on him? accidentally on purpose got everybody's data that was like I'm like what there is no way that was that was um handy to have I was surprised but that was released to the Astros lawyer and then it came to him by accident I think if I remember correctly yeah um yeah so my impression of him I mean I thought it was a great score to get him for the interview because I you know this was his first interview and that was where Ben's relationship with the team obviously came into play because they knew each other before they had established certain level of trust but i thought it was interesting you know he he definitely he you know took his lumps and he talked about you know the time that he had the one thing he thought was going on and he he broke it up but he didn't know the rest of this that was going on but that he was the one that took the fall and other people that were much guiltier than he of letting this go on were still there, including somebody that had gotten um, promoted and somebody whose initials we only know, which I thought was kind of interesting. So TWK or something like that. <laughs> I was like, this is so, so much intrigue here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to me, he came across as sympathetic, but then at the same time, it's like, he was the boss and he was in charge and he had been brought in to do a job. And how could he really be that clueless to not know 
something was going on. So he's definitely complex because it's like I, I kind of went back and forth on him a lot. All right. Well, Kevin, am I taking it over? Should we do what we do? Let's let our listeners know. I'm reluctant to let go of the reins. I'm telling but... you, Kevin, I think I'm going to give it back to you after the business section. <laughs> Should we check out The Edge, the Houston Astros, brand new podcast about a non-bloody, non-murder, non-kidnapping, non-con job crime about a crime it committed a con in job. sports. Different kind of con job. Laura, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Edge? So, I, like I said, I am not a sports person. I'm not a baseball person, but this was a really well done podcast. It was definitely long episodes that I think if you are into baseball, you're going to like the length of the episodes. If you're not into baseball and you might not want to know the minutia about every single player, you might be like, okay, let's move this along. But I thought, you know, there was a lot of really interesting information that I didn't know. We didn't even get into my favorite character, the amateur sleuth and fan Tony, who made his own website with all of the chronicling of the cheating. So, you know, I think this is a good long podcast to take some good long rage walks, which we all need to do right now. So I would say thumbs up. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down? down for the edge yeah i, I liked it I, I thought it was good uh there, there are times when they spent a little bit more time on certain subjects than i would have spent but for the most part i thought it was it's interesting i mean i think that there's a lot of things I, i'd be kind of interested to read the book and then listen to it because it seemed like there's a lot of things he kind of hints at about the astros organization and like the sort of mixture of like the stat geeks and the athletes and, and how that all works. But yeah, I you know, I give it a thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. I'm a thumbs up. You know, it wasn't until the end of episode one that I heard the credits. And I was thinking, you know, when, just before it was done, I said, oh, you know, this this is put together a lot like Slow Burn. Because we had just listened to Leon Nafox. So I was like, oh, yeah. And then I found out that one of the producers, in addition to Cadence 13, is Prologue Productions which is Leon A. Fox group. Mm. So it has a lot. This could be fiasco season four, right? I think it's put together very well. Um, the subject matter, yeah, it's not a sports, necessarily a sports podcast. Certainly, if you're a sports fan, you can get that out of that. I think it's worth a crime writers on audience listen because of all of those reasons. I think he does a fairly good job of making it pedestrian enough that a non-sports fan would, would listen to it. It might go into a little too much in the weeds on some of the baseball stuff but overall I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty good and you know just in the end here we haven't heard the seventh episode hmm. uh, by the time we're recording this they've only gotten to the sixth but I hope they kind of land the plane because there's been a lot of talk about what happened and let's get to an ending yeah so I'm a thumbs up too I mean I think I have some of the same quibbles you guys do about the length of some of the sort of sections for me it's not the baseball stuff that goes on too long it's the business stuff that goes on too long there's a yeah. long passage about sort of like the businessification of this team which by the way I got immediately as soon as he talked about the jeans shit I was like I get it you don't need to go into like what happened when the guy got there and then there were these fights that part went on this too is long how Laura me. learned what AstroTurf came from I understand but that, that part was great yeah. the history of the Astros <laughs> part the building of the Astrodome the daughter of the judge who sang the song at the end of the episode that stuff was <laughs> awesome the baseball stuff was awesome I just I think that sort of 
when you are a writer like Ben, you you perhaps fall in love with certain components of your material. He's a sports purist. The businessification of the sport maybe like rubbed him a little stronger than it rubs someone like me. All you got to do is tell me that that's what happened and I get it. Other than that, uh, my only other quibble is the mixing of the episodes. A little bit off. I felt like the music was just like a little low sometimes. And like I just felt like it sort of lacked a little bit of a, a perfect polish like Fiasco had. But other than that, like very strong podcast. I'm I'm going to tell other people to listen to it. I hate baseball, and I really like this podcast, so thumbs up for me. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, Kevin, here we are in the business section of the podcast. What is happening on our Patreon right now, Kevin? Can you run it down for us? Yeah, right now in your Patreon feeds, we have the Crime Writers on After Show. What are we talking about? I, we haven't talked about it yet. But if you jump over there... Because we recorded after this Yeah, show. I think we're going to be talking about um, some of our new TV hit picks. Yes. TV picks, including The Queen's Gambit. Yes. Uh, we also have a new episode of Leave it to Bricker. <gasps> What's it about? Laura meets the folks... But folks, the fifth graders of the Little Detective Co. Oh my God! And uh, also out is we've got Toby Ball's latest deep dive book club podcast with all stars. With all stars, they were talking about the book Just Mercy. Toby, I haven't been able to listen to the audio yet. How did it go? Oh, it was great. It was it was really fun. Uh, it was Janet Varney and Rabia Chaudhry. Who's that? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and uh, Dr. Shiloh from uh, LA Not So Confidential podcast. I hope their careers get a boost from having been on <laughs> yes. Patreon podcast. Having yes. been our behind the firewall, behind the paywall, little tiny book club podcast. Don't tell them that. Laura, yeah. Robbie Chaudhary is a fucking best-selling author. Janet Varney's like famous. I'm sure they're thrilled. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, it was, a, it was a great conversation. I mean, they're all, they're obviously smart, insightful people. Um, so that was fun. And it was the day we recorded it the night before the election. Yeah. So there was kind of like <laughs> this weird little, energy. <laughs> little angsty feel to the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think people will like it. Yeah. An angsty feel which has completely dissipated that none of us are feeling anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so far in the future that people, by the time they're listening to this. Well, yeah. you know, it's, right now, as you're listening to this podcast, either everything's fine or we are all going to the moon on the next capsule that goes there to build a space station. <laughs> we don't know. It's the whole point. All right. So, Kevin, uh, before we be resume the show, I should ask you, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? We do. Sharice King and Megan Tucker are our Patreon patron saints. Bless you. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny to me every single time you say bless you. I don't know. But if you keep saying it like that, it'll stop being funny. All right. It's true, though. I just, I get a kick out of, I think it's because something our listeners can't see, which is your face when you say it, it becomes like beatific. <laughs> you get a very saintly, like, form. You're, you're, you're an There's altar boy. There's a glowing boy, right? halo. Over yes, it. yes. No, it's not an altar boy. <laughs> well, thank you very much to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You can get all the content we have there. Toby's Book Club, Laura's Leave It to Bricker podcast, uh, Married with Podcast, which we are going to be taping again soon, right? Yep. And, of course, our Patreon after show. You can get that all at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Thank you for your support. Kevin, I think thus ends the business section. Yes. There goes the music. It's gone. <laughs> 
Kevin, seriously, do you want to just keep hosting this podcast? You're doing a really good job. All right, if you want. I mean, I did surgically repair my voice. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. I'm just going to hand you the script. Go I don't know. I have my own right here. All right. Kevin's okay. just going to be hosting the second half of the podcast. Let's go. Moving on. Mm. How do you see them? Personally or in Personally. I see them as vulgar, anti-establishment, anti-social, and unpragmatic, but none of those things are indictable. And imagine how impressed I'll be when you get an indictment. In 1969, the Nixon administration charged the leaders of some anti-war groups with inciting a riot outside the Democratic Convention. The defendants were dubbed the Chicago Seven. Among them was Yippie leader Abby Hoffman, who sought to use the trial to make a statement about Vietnam. When we walked in here this morning, they were chanting that the whole world is watching. This is it. We're on. This is what revolution looks like. Real revolution. Cultural revolution. But student protester Tom Hayden appears to be the only one taking seriously their roles in the riots and the legal jeopardy that they're in. Are we using this trial to defend ourselves against very serious charges that could land us in prison for 10 years? Or are we using it to say a pointless fuck you to the establishment? Fuck you. That is what I was afraid. I don't know if you were saying fuck you or answer. I was also confused. Featuring an all-star cast... The trial of the Chicago 7 follows these counterculture figures as they confront prosecutors, an unstable judge, and each other. The film offers modern parallels about standing up to power, fighting the good fight, and accepting the consequences. Now we're going to be talking about plot points from the trial of the Chicago 7. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Um, Okay, Toby Ball, let's start with you. The writer of this movie, which this is supposed to be a theatrical release, but hey, shit happens in the world. <laughs> and it went to Netflix. And the writer is um, the writer from The West Wing in the newsroom, Aaron Sorkin. And so he has a very typical style and a very particular voice. What did you think? Well, I think like with a lot of Aaron Sorkin stuff, there's the good and the bad. There's some good dialogue. It at least attempts to like deal with ideas but then there's also he he does have this like uh, flair for like the theatrical and then this idea that people will in the end do the right thing which i find i don't know i it, it seems like it kind of undermines some of the other ways in which he's good when you know you just can't you can't escape these sort of bombastic endings or, or, or people all sort of coming to their senses about certain things. So I, as with all other Aaron Sorkin stuff, I sort of 60% liked it. <laughs> That's exactly the right percentage. Toby just nailed it because the bottom line is like we all say we love the West Wing, wing right? If you actually watch the West Wing right now, it is so Pollyanna. <laughs> it actually, and like, it's it, there's so many problems with it. Like, for instance, as uh, our son Henry would say, the token character, Charlie, who's an incredibly problematic character for myriad reasons. But the optimism of Aaron Sorkin is, of course, the president of the United States would have a young black man as his, like, assistant who's in the uh, West Wing with him all the time, helping him make key decisions, yet who we find out many times during the series only makes like 30 grand a year like that's very Aaron Sorkin to be like I'm going to acknowledge hardship but also 
it's going to be fine. And sort of this instant rapport that characters are supposed to have with one another. What's Aaron Sorkin's most famous trope? The walk and talk, right? Walk and talk, yeah. He doesn't do that in this so much. As the place he does, to walk. They're all in. Right. Yeah. But what he does is sort of like these fake walk and talks where they're just sitting around a table doing like a walk and talk, which feels weird because they're not actually walking. But yeah, about 60% is about right. There's a lot of things I love about Aaron Sorkin and about 40%. Eh. <laughs> well, it's got a great cast. We've got Sasha Baron Cohen. He's having a moment. Uh, he plays <laughs> Abby Hoffman. We also have Eddie Red, uh, Redmayne. He was in The Theory of Everything and uh, you know, award winner. He was in Laura. What was the uh, Harry Potter one? Ma- mystical, the magical beast, beast, fantastic Fan- beast. Yeah. So that's my reference. <laughs> and jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But uh, there was a really great uh, supporting turn here by Franklin Jella who played Judge Julius Hoffman oh. in this case. All right, that's enough. Where are you learning these things? Does your young friend, Mr. Hampton, have a background in law? Your Honor, the other defendants would like to join in Mr. Seal's motion. Are you now speaking on behalf of Mr. Seal? No, Your Honor, I'm speaking on behalf of the other defendants. You're standing right next to him. Why don't you just represent him? Because I'm not his lawyer, sir. Lord, give me your hot take. He's a total freaking lunatic, and I want to punch him in the head and beat him with his walker. That's what I have to say about him. Oh, my God. I was screaming. I, I'm sure you guys knew this when you're watching this. I was screaming at the TV every time he was on. Um, <laughs> not letting that guy, Bobby Seal, have a lawyer. Shushing him. And he wouldn't let Michael Keaton's character, the former attorney general, at the time of the riots, testify. I'm like, he was just so blatantly biased. I actually went online and I'm like, was this guy as bad as he was in yep. the movie? And he yep. was. And he was. <laughs> I freaking hated him. But that was good because it gave me like a good diversion from the rest of the world to hate on him for a while. You mentioned Bobby Seal. It's the Chicago 7, but it starts off as the Chicago 8. Racist. Because they bring in Bobby Seal. We will talk maybe later about how it starts off you know, with the prosecutors, with the government deciding how they're going to you know, why they want to bring this case. With John Mitchell, husband of Martha Mitchell from Slow Burn. Slow Burn. <laughs> well, also from the real life. The real Water life thing. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but in some ways, Bobby Seale's story is uh, separate from the rest of the anti-Vietnam War protesters. He's the head of the Black Panthers. He happened to be in Chicago very briefly. And it seems like they just sort of used it to their advantage to be able to throw him on the pile with all the other rabble-rousers that they're going to get. But his story is different, He's and he's separate from them in a lot of different ways. Rebecca, what do you think about his real-life story and how it was shown on this film? Well, the one... You know, there's a lot of good stuff in the film about sort of how he's treated in court, you know, beaten um, right outside the courtroom, how he's you know bound and gagged, basically lynched in front of the jury, um, quasi lynched in front of the jury in myriad ways, denied his rights over and over and over again. But the thing he says, and I don't know if this is something he actually said in court or a very Sorkin line, which is basically... You put me here to scare these white people into convicting these other white people. Like, you put me here to be the boogeyman. He is not represented by counsel. Overruled. I am being denied Mr. right now Seale, my constitutional will you be right for the will you, representation. Will you be quiet? I think that's right. It's probably exactly what happened. Uh, they probably saw an opportunity to not only make a public statement against the Black Panthers, but also have a stronger case against these kind of likable, somewhat earnest, especially in Tom Hayden's case, white guys by putting what they saw would be a 
you know, quote, threatening persona in the pile with them in terms of the defendants. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays the federal prosecutor, Richard Schultz, who we see in the beginning uh, is kind of reluctant to bring these charges. He's, he's sort of ordered to by the new attorney general. It's a law and they broke it. Of course, sir. Is there a problem? No, sir. Say what you want to say, since apparently I'm paying you for your wisdom. Give me my money's worth. Sir, there are people who will see this as the Justice Department restraining free speech, and there are people who see these men as martyrs. Are any of those people in this room? No, sir. Toby, I don't know historically if that lines up as far as his mixed feelings about the case, but it seems sort of like from a narrative standpoint that being a guy who is sort of half into it, I don't know if that makes him the best antagonist on the paper, whether it should be somebody who is, I'm fully in, to have a prosecutor who is somewhat sympathetic to these guys, I don't know if that creates the most conflict. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I mean, in some ways, he seems like almost a middle figure, right? And that he's got the the more conservative... Uh, you know, you've got John Mitchell, then you've got, I can't remember the guy's name, who's like his supervisor, who's sitting in the seat next to him during the trial, pulling him in one direction and, and really encouraging him to to go after these guys. So, you know, it's pretty clear that his sympathies aren't really with these leftist self-styled rebels, I guess. But I, you know, I could see where, again, it's like, it's Aaron Sorkin. So you want to have a guy who's at least on paper sort of a more interesting character by having some qualms about what he's doing and like how, you know, what, what, what are we really trying to accomplish here? What did these people really do to deserve the amount of force we're bringing against them? Being uncomfortable with the way Bobby Seale is treated, clearly. And then there's the ridiculous shit at the end, too. Hmm. Rebecca, I, wa- I think you would agree with me that the guy who steals just about every scene he's in is Jeremy Strong, yes. who plays Jerry Rubin. You, you know Jeremy Strong from from Succession. Yes, he's Kendall Roy. Kendall Roy. Uh, he's World's not, greatest character. He's nearly unrecognizable no, in this. No, he's not. But he plays such a fun, hippy-dippy yippie. Then you bug our phones, you, you wire up a dope dealer, be a man. You don't send a woman to, to ensorcel me. Huh? Oh, it, it means uh, to enchant, oh. only to have her crush my soul. How long did you two know each other? 93 hours. Could have been a lifetime. What did you think of, of him? I don't know. I think he's just Kendall Roy. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. He's Oh, he's not Kendall Roy. No, I know. But, yeah. the, but his this is an actor who will, for me, and I think everyone else, forever be defined by Kendall Roy. Kendall Roy is a once-in-a-lifetime singular role that brought Jeremy Strong to the masses. Sure, Eddie Redmayne is uh, upset Eddie, but right Eddie, now. Yeah. But Eddie Redmayne is a chameleon. He's been in lots of things, playing lots of different yeah. kinds of characters. Kendall Roy is a singular character that has an arc almost unlike any other character that I've seen in television in the last 10 years. And so it was very hard for me not to see him as Kendall Roy playing this hippie. You know what I mean? But I actually have a question for you that pertains to the earlier thing you you asked, Toby. You were talking about sort of the watered down nature of the villain of What's His Face from Third Rock from the Sun. Joseph (laughs) Gordon-Levitt. Yes. Uh, Who will always be What's His Face from Third Rock from the Sun, even though he's been in a million other things. Um, Do you think that that's why they sort of 
of dialed up the judge so much because they knew they needed no, a real they, protagonist? No, that was really the judge. Yeah, a real antagonist. I don't, they yeah. didn't need to dial him up at all. There was a, a stage version of, of the story that I remember was on HBO like in the 80s. I remember, because I, I knew most of the story from having seen that, hmm. where the judge kept calling wine glass... Weinstein, he just kept messing up the name, like like weird things like that, where everybody, all the defendants would say in unison, overruled, when the judge says overruled, they they made a puppet show out of the, the thing. I think from the writing side, though, one of the things that you don't get in the real trial is you don't get, and Aaron Sorkin wrote this in A Few Good Men. Which he wrote the play for. You don't get the, you can't handle the truth moment on the stand, right? Because that never happened. So instead, they write it into a scene where Tom Hayden wants to take the stand. And so his defense attorney, who's played very well by Mark Rylance. Who yeah, I love. He does the cross-examination. And, it's, and what it ends up doing is it gives you the dramatic moment and it does the flashback. And it brings both of those parallel stories to their climax. It brings a climax to the tension in the courtroom trial, and it also shows you the riot starting and brings you to both. I really thought that paid off. Were you resisting arrest? They pushed us through the window. You overrun the riot police. Which is more make than Rennie can say. Over gas, 400 people the admitted to area hospitals with severe bridge. injuries. You they can practically armored vehicles and bayonets. And they the took convention. off their and name tags and badges. You we gave yourself up peacefully at the fucking convention. Toby, I'd like to ask you as the writer, and everybody's a writer, but I really want to know Toby's take on that. Did that work for you or was it too contrived? No, that wasn't too bad, actually. That was, I thought, one of the stronger parts. I guess I should say stronger, like, scenes with a capital S in uh, in the show. Because he does do these, like, sort of set pieces where it's going to be like a Sorkin moment. And I thought that one was 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 effective. It was smart and I think it it's well acted and I th- it's a good way of bringing up both the issues and then also moving the story forward and, and your understanding of what happened forward. So yeah, I thought that was good. I thought that was good. There's other parts where I think it, uh, one of the, one of the things is when, uh, is when Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden are getting into it. And then uh, Abby Hoffman gets a little teary eyed and says, he's read everything that Hayden has written. It's a pattern. Read his portion of the Port Huron statement. He implies possessive pronouns and uses vague noun modifiers. You read the Port Huron statement? Uh, I've read everything you've published. I didn't know that. You're a talented guy. Except for the possessive I pronouns know. and the vague noun modifiers. Hayden, like, has this, like, sudden, like, ah, oh, maybe he's not so bad if he likes my writing uh, <laughs> moment. And, and Sasha Baron Cohen goes, he's nice. <laughs> so it's just, you know, that's when I wish somebody would just be like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure this is really where you want to go with this. Like, you're kind of being a caricature of yourself. So I think those are kind of like the opposite. And again, we can talk about the ending in a minute. But those are kind of, I, I, I kind of see them on the opposite ends of the Sorkin uh, whatever spectrum, which is this corny kind of BS on the one hand, and then this other thing, which I thought was was sort of smart and engaged with some ideas and and, and kind of moved the uh, the story along in a way that you know made sense and was suspenseful. Laura, what did you think of the parallel narrative tracks here? The flashback telling along with the the trials that's going on. 
Well, I think that that for me was the only thing that kept the momentum going because I felt like the courtroom part really, honestly, aside from the judge that I was raging at, I did feel like it it kind of got bogged down at times and it definitely got a little bit slow. So I was glad to see the background and see what led up to the courtroom drama. And there were a couple times I was like, wait, is this happening now or did this happen in the past? You know, when they were debriefing a couple times, I was like, okay, was this leading up to it? Or um, I think that it was good to have that. It's like when you're reading a book and you're going back and forth going in this person's perspective for a while or this person's, and it kind of keeps the pace of the novel going. I still think it kind of struggled to keep up the momentum in the middle section. For me anyway, I just felt like it just got a little bit too bogged down. I want to ask you about one more character, Laura, because all the defendants are these young radicals. Some look like students, some look like crazy hippies and then there's one and that's david dellinger who is an older man and a boy scout troop leader what did you think of this real life person involved among the the other seven ultimately six defendants well, I was so curious about him. I actually went and looked him up because I wanted to know more. I'm like, what is this old guy doing with all these other this? I'm like, was this like an undercover cop? I'm like, who is this guy? Looked, like so <laughs> clean cut. I'm like, what is he doing here? So he was actually like in his 50s at the time. And he had been like this pacifist activist for since like World War Two. So he was definitely he also Kevin. He had a period of time where he lived with the hobo Americans. Nice. The hobo Americans. <laughs> he lived, he lived with them. I'm David Dellinger. I got a walkie-talkie. <laughs> but um, yeah, and he died in Vermont, just a short distance from us. Um, but seriously, was he the one that you actually expected to punch a bailiff? No. And then apologize. Because you know <laughs> he never did. It, the pacifist slugged a bailiff. It's because it's totally made up. He didn't actually do it. He didn't actually do it. Yeah. You mean he didn't apologize or he didn't slug the bailiff? <laughs> Sorry, I just keep thinking about all of like our relatively new listeners who have no idea what hobo American is and just thinks we're being like super offensive with no context right now. They're not bums, they're hobo Americans. <laughs> then Toby, let's just wind up on the ending there because it's a very dramatic scene. It's sentencing time. Tom Hayden, who has been the most respectful of of the defendants to the judge, realizes he can really kiss some ass and, and stay out of jail. But instead, he decides to use that time to read off the f- names of the 4,000 troops killed in Vietnam since the beginning of the trial. What did you think of this dramatic scene? Uh, dramatic, if true. Unfortunately, <laughs> a fabrication. Really? Yeah, that did happen. I, I looked it up. I think they read at some other part when the jury wasn't around in the middle of the trial, they pulled a stunt like that, but that wasn't how that played out. They didn't get to do 4,000 names while the judge stood up and banged the gavel didn't, didn't and everybody. Try. Yeah. I, I don't know try. what what he said, but it, it's so contrived and awful. And that Gordon Levitt guy like stands up, like respect the troops, man. Or you know, <laughs> He's not all something. that bad. That clean yeah. cut nerd. That to me is like the worst of Aaron Sorkin right there. It's it was like made up. It's a crime. It really is. <laughs> I didn't know. It's I like, mean, I'm, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I looked it up and, you know, maybe I was lied to by, I, I can't remember what the source was, but it seemed like it was fairly legit. And I can actually, when somebody else starts talking, I'll look it up again just to make sure. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, 
And again, amazing if true. It's not true. So it just reads, it's just, it just ends up being a bunch of bullshit and trying to get an emotional ending to this thing and showing this higher purpose, which I 100% agree with, which is trying to stop the war, trying to stop the draft. Yeah, that's what they were, that's what they were trying to do. Like that was, that was their main grievance. But I, I don't know. It just, it just seems. It's not exactly sketchy. It just kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth at the end of it uh, when you find out that just he just made that shit up because the actual ending probably wasn't quite as uplifting enough for Aaron Sorkin. Well, I think let's do what we do, and that is to turn things back over to Rebecca <laughs> for our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. All right. So, Lara Bricker, should our listeners check out? By the way, Kevin, let me just interrupt myself. Like, nice job. It is. I'll tell you. Thanks. I heard you hosting the first half of the podcast, and I just have really been loving hearing you sound. Oh, like thank you. you. It's thank just, you. So wonderful, and I'm just so glad. I do glad. need to rest my voice now. <laughs> it's not like we didn't have you before, but it does feel like you're back, and I just, you know, you've had your moment in the sun. I hope you enjoyed it. That's the last oh, fucking yeah. time it's going to happen. <laughs> All right, let's do what we do. Should our listeners check out The Trial of Chicago 7? Feature film available now on Netflix, Aaron Sorkin film, based on a true story, loosely. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Trial of the Chicago 7? Yeah, I'm going to say if you want to take your mind off the rest of the world and find something else to rage about, you can look at Judge Hoffman in the trial of the (laughs) Chicago 7, and it will just make you forget everything else. Plus, by the way, Michael Keaton, I'm like, he's still around, made a little appearance there. That made me happy. So yeah, you know, I think it was definitely there were parts that were slow. There were parts that dragged, and I didn't love it. But you know what? It's it's two hours or two and a half hours. We've got plenty of time to watch it. We spent much more time watching other things over the past two weeks. And I would say give it a shot. I'm just going to say about Michael Keaton. He was in one of my favorite movies in the last few years, Birdman, which, by the way, is brilliant. If you've never watched it, you should watch it. About Spotlight. Also, he's a spotlight. Also, he's getting hotter and hotter as he gets older. He's just one of those like Benjamin Button types. I don't know what's going on with Michael Keaton, but I want some of what he's having. He's Batman. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Trial of the Chicago 7? There's a lot of problems with this movie. <laughs> um, like the fact, I didn't realize that Jerry Rubin was the uh, was the inspiration for the character Shaggy on Scooby-Doo because that's the way he's portrayed <laughs> in this. And there's like another... Like Abby. <laughs> there's like a complete, another completely made up subplot about a... Uh, an attractive undercover police cop, like kind of uh. seducing him and him being heartbroken by it again, didn't happen. Hmm. So he's just kind of like this weird stoner loser comedy relief thing, which is kind of annoying with this fake. I mean, it's just all this fake stuff that, that you just wonder like, why was that necessary? Uh, so again, I, I kind of come to the 60, 40 thing, you know, it's 60% enjoyable. 40% just makes you want to tear your hair out. Uh, before Patrick Hines told me I couldn't do thumbs sideways, I would say thumbs sideways. Just say it. You can say it. He's not here. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I, I, I don't have to live under Patrick's tyranny. I'm a thumbs sideways. I mean, I don't, it doesn't, it's not a horrible, but I just kind of feel like if somebody could just sit down with Aaron Sorkin and be like, do less cocaine. <laughs> yeah, let's just let's just let's just like make it a like twenty percent less Sorkin, hmm. and uh, and then maybe it'd be better. Anyway, that's me. Kevin Flynn, what about you? 
Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. I did like this. Uh, it does have a, a voice, the Aaron Sorkin voice, very Frank Capra-esque. Uh, on cocaine? On cocaine. <laughs> the Steven Spielberg of politics. You know, as a writer, I'm looking at this, and they've got seven defendants, and they, were, they did a good job of making each one different from the other. Yeah, I get that Abby Hoffman is not the same as Tom Hayden, and I think they you know, were able to play up some of the Tom Hayden's characteristics to, so that you see the consequences through his eyes, the legal risk here, what they're doing, and you know, also, and, and we're in the spoiler-free part, but when we get to the climax, we find out exactly how the big riot started and who was responsible and what was said and what was meant to be said. I thought that was a good payoff. Overall, yeah, I mean, I can't disagree that there's some hokey stuff in here. And when you twist, you know, historical fact to meet a more enjoyable narrative, yeah, sometimes we roll our eyes at that. But I'm okay with this two hours of uh, fantasy retelling of a... (laughs) Given the times that we're in, sometimes it's good to remember that there are people who will stick their neck out to do the right thing. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up only because this was entertaining. And just because entertaining doesn't mean it's good, but it was I was entertained. And, you know, sometimes when something is entertaining, like that is enough. And that's how this movie made it for me. I also, by the way, I thought Sasha Baron Cohen's performance was very, very strong in this film. You didn't know it was him. No, I did not initially know, and we had just seen the new Borat film, and he's he's a very, very recognizable character actor, aside from his Borat uh, kitsch, and he just really, I think, did a great job kind of embodying Abby Hoffman. I will say one problematic thing for me about this movie, which is not particularly Sorkinian, is that he, I think, makes a lot of assumptions that the audience knows more about this story than probably most of the audience knows about this story. He doesn't do a lot of the exposition that I think could have been done in a way that was a light touch, but also necessary for a generation of viewers who know nothing about the boomer experience in the 60s. So I just say, like, uh, you know, if Toby and and you, Kevin, and I and Laura all had to look shit up on Wikipedia to see, was this true? Was this not true? It kind of tells me that Aaron Sorkin maybe missed a few pages of the script there. Overall, though, I thought it was an entertaining film, very glossy and, you know, a fun watch for a rainy Sunday afternoon. So an okay thumbs up for me. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. The week. Should I do this too or just let you... This one is close to home. Do you want to do it? No, I don't. A New Hampshire woman was able to get her drug possession and stalking charges dismissed. All she had to do was impersonate the prosecutor and file the documents to make the problem go away. A grand jury has indicted Lisa Landon for false impersonation. She allegedly filled out some forms to null pros her charges and signed the name of the county attorney. The plan would have worked, too, if a state's witness hadn't been prepping for trial, saw the paperwork, and called the prosecutor. Landon has a new date before a judge, and if she wants a real lawyer, she'll probably have the money to get one. That's because she also filed fake documents to waive all of her previous court fees. (laughs) Might as well do it all. This is just a really high-stakes version of forging your parents' signature to get out of school. 
So my question for you is, have you ever forged an excuse note to get out of something? Laura Bricker, go. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've forged my mother's name through elementary school and also junior high school and high school because she had horrible handwriting. So it was like really easy to do. But this reminds me of the time that I had a cat. My cat Nookie was living in an apartment where I wasn't supposed to have cats after college. And the we're landlord- supposed to have Nookie in that apartment? I wasn't supposed to have Nookie. And the landlord came in one day without giving us notice while I was at work. And I got this like email that was like, I went into your apartment and I detected cat litter with fresh poop. And I was like, oh, <gasps> So I was like, I have to come up with an excuse. So I was like, I was in the newsroom and this poor older woman I worked with is still traumatized. And I said, how do you spell hysterectomy? (laughs) And And I wrote a letter and I said, I was caring for the cat for a friend of mine who recently had a hysterectomy. It will so be specific. Wow. You going to give an element you could spell? No, I will say something. Laura did the perfect thing. You know why? Why? There are certain excuses that no one wants to follow up on. Hysterectomy is one. Diarrhea is another. Yeah. Great excuse. It's called liarrhea. Use it anytime you want to get out of something. No one will ask you any follow-up questions. There you go. Tell me, Bob, what about you? Have you ever forged a note to get out of something? I don't think I have. <gasps> wow. <laughs> I, I'm trying to. Th- I was trying to think of like when, when have I ever like had something like that? I did have. I well, I still do. I, I've got this friend who uh, everything he entered, he won. He's just like one of those people who just like he'll enter a contest and he'll win. Prize and pay. he pu- he put in my name for a contest for like this vacation, and and I got a call like you won the vacation or whatever, and I'm like oh. That's awesome. Don't remember entering, but I assume Chris must have entered for me. <laughs> and, uh, but then he starts asking me all this, like, <laughs> starts asking me all these questions. This is when I was in college. And uh, he's like, so it says here you're a uh, semi-professional basketball coach. <laughs> I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> this is not going well. I'm so, not going uh, on vacation. Yeah, didn't, didn't end up going. Kevin Flynn, ever forward to know to get out of something? Not to get out of something, but there is that secret life insurance policy I have out on you. Oh. Oh, my God. I, I'm with Laura. I forged so many notes as a kid. And then I would also forge stuff from my school to my parents. Like, I did it both ways. Like, I got a report card once, and it, I got, like, a... a so six- you could have been playing for the Houston Astros. Yeah, like like a mid-semester. Like, I had, like, a 68 or something, and I just changed the 6 to an 8. And it was just like, here you go. It was fine. No one ever caught on. So I guess my whole life is a lie. <laughs> 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 All right, we should probably end it on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week. Yes. In honor of the recent elections, I would like to thank somebody for sending this to me. Pumpkin, who is the Athens County, Ohio Board of Elections cat. And Pumpkin is an orange cat that is sitting in the window in this picture that was sent to me at the Athens County Board of Elections. And I was, I, I thought that was good. I'm like, I'll go with that cat this week. All right. Well, Laura Bricker, if folks want to send you their animals, they, be, they could be cats, they could be dogs, they could be emus, they could be llamas, they could literally be anything to be Cat of the Week. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And I have an update. Uh, Lisa Strawn actually has a possum in her house. Nice. Oh. No surprise there. Those things, man, they're loud, they like to get into stuff, and they're ugly. Laura Bricker, Pet Detective. If Toby Ball folks want to reach out to you and verify your credentials as an amateur basketball coach, how can they find you on Twitter? 
It's semi-professional. For <laughs> um, at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and tell you what a great job you did hosting the show, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Balls, Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by the amazing Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the handsome Henry Lavoie, assisted by Olivia Burdett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet on New Hampshire basement where we often release the Kornacki. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. I went for a physical... And so that you know how they do the screener questions, like for your mental health. Yeah. And they're flipping through the, the the iPad, and they're like, "In the past two weeks, have you ever felt like the world was out of control? <laughs> <laughs> have you have you had trouble speaking, sleeping? Have you had more drinks than they? And I was like, "Yes, yes, yes." I'm like, "This is a wrong fucking week to give me this thing." <laughs> I said, "I'd like to come back Monday for a two-over." <laughs> Give me the straight jacket. Man, two guys with butterfly nets came out looking for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you guys ready for our podcast? We're ready. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.